And thanks to both counsel. Our next case for argument this morning is Jason Peterson v. James. Actually, I think the defendant that's left is John Drainan, not Jamie James. We'll correct the caption. Good morning, Mr. Flaxman. Good morning. May it please the court, Your Honor is correct, the only defendant that the appeal is against is John Drainan. The plaintiff in this case is Jason Peterson. He spent an extra year in prison because defendant Drainan failed to do his job so that Mr. Peterson could be paroled. Drainan was a prison counselor at the Vandalia Correctional Center. When Peterson was coming up for parole, Peterson requested to be released to a halfway house called the Wayside Cross Ministries in Aurora. Drainan's job as a prison counselor was to take requests like that one, forward them to the parole office for further review. If Drainan doesn't forward the request, it can't be reviewed. The prisoner cannot parole to that site he's requesting to parole to. So Drainan in this case has a gatekeeper role. Mr. Flaxman, is there any policy or procedure at IDOC that would require Mr. Drainan to submit Mr. Peterson's request of preference to the parole regulatory group or PRG? The testimony from Officer Drainan is that when prisoners make requests for parole sites, it's his job to forward them. He has put forward testimony about two different policies where he wouldn't do it. I can't point you to evidence that says a parole counselor has to forward every single address he gets, but I think that's what his job is. I don't think he's denying that he has, or I don't think he's contending he has absolute discretion to just throw out certain addresses that he's given. The theory is that he's the gatekeeper, and unless he forwards an address to the parole resource group, it won't get considered. Just to get the terminology correct, this form of release is not really parole. It's mandatory supervised release. Yes, so I could call it MSR, and that would confuse us more, but the word is mandatory. There's no dispute that if Mr. Peterson has an approved host site, he is released. No one has to exercise discretion about that under Illinois law. But it is contingent upon somebody approving the release site, so it's not mandatory in the ordinary sense of that word. That's right. I mean, yes, we're not disputing that there is this necessary step of getting the host site approved. And who sets this date? Is this an administrative date, or is this a court-set date? The date is set by the court. I think sometimes there's good time and credits like that, but based on the prisoner gets us, every prisoner in Illinois gets a sentence of prison time plus a certain time on MSR. Mr. Peterson has a four-year MSR term. And so there's no dispute about what the date is when Mr. Peterson's MSR parole begins. So the only question is whether he met the criteria to be released on MSR on parole. And those criteria are also embedded in state law by statute? It's not some prison regulation? There are both. So there are some conditions of parole that are imposed 
by the parole board. There are some conditions that are by statute. In this case, Mr. Peterson was required to be on GPS by statute. Some other parolees have that requirement that's not required by statute, but it's imposed at the prison level. Okay, thank you. And that was as a result of the nature of his conviction, the GPS requirement? Yes, so because he was convicted of violating an order of protection, he's required to be on GPS for the time that he's on mandatory supervised release. And no discretion or variation in that as a result of the nature of the conviction? Right, there's no discretion. One argument the defendant had raised below was that maybe he wasn't required to be on GPS by the time he was finally allowed to parole this site, but they've withdrawn that and agree that under the law, under Illinois law, he was required to be on GPS. And in fact, the evidence is that he was on GPS. And that's, in our view, the key evidence is that once Mr. Peterson transferred to another prison and once a different prison counselor was reviewing his request, that prison counselor forwarded the request to the other office within the Department of Corrections. The request was approved and Mr. Peterson was allowed to be released. What about Mr. Drennan's testimony that the reason he didn't think that Wayside was available because he had a conversation with someone from Wayside and he had a conversation with someone from the parole group? Well, based on the evidence I just referenced about what happened later, we know that whatever Mr. Drennan believed or claims to believe was incorrect. But how do we know that? How do we know that at the time that Mr. Drennan heard that, that Wayside either was at capacity or had a different policy versus later on? We have evidence, testimony from Mr. Peterson that Wayside told him there's a bed available for you and you take GPS. So, I mean, we have the same kind of evidence on both sides about that issue. And whether or not Mr. Drennan was truly relying on these beliefs is a question that should go to the jury, especially where we have in black and white Drennan's response to the grievance that doesn't say, oh, I know that you can't go to Wayside because they're at capacity or they don't take GPS. It says, per IDOC, there's a rule that says you can't go to a halfway house with GPS. And that's the reason that Mr. Peterson got at the time. That was the claim that I'm applying this rule that we now know doesn't exist. Right. And that suggests that Officer Drennan was mistaken. Does it support an inference of deliberate indifference? The court's precedent from the Figgs case and the Huber case, yes, say that a jury can find deliberate indifference when a prison official in a situation like this is so, their work is so ineffectual that it can rise to the level of deliberate indifference. But that involved a miscalculation of a parole date, right? Well, those cases involve miscalculations, but they stand for a proposition that once a prison official knows there's a problem and someone's not being released, they have a duty to do some investigation. And once Drennan's put on notice, especially once he's put on notice, that Mr. Peterson has a spot at this halfway house that will take him with GPS, Drennan has to do something more than just say, no, I'm continuing to apply this rule that doesn't exist. The language in deliberate indifference cases 
talk about substantial departures from professional judgment, talk about conduct that's so blatantly inappropriate. It's our position that a jury could take the evidence that Drannon was applying a rule that didn't exist and make those findings. The one other point I will make is that the defendant is relying on a different rule on appeal, this claim that Drannon wasn't allowed to submit a specific halfway house for review. We've pointed to the evidence in the record showing that the other counselor at the other prison did just that. And a jury could look at that and say, well, that rule doesn't apply either. And here is the second time trying to apply a rule that doesn't exist. It's clear that this is more than just a mistake. This is going against all of the, you know, what we would expect from a professional in this situation. This is so ineffectual under the circumstances that a jury can find deliberate indifference. If there are no other questions, I'll reserve the remaining time. Thank you. Fine. Thank you. Mr. Sheffield. Good morning, Your Honors. Jonathan Sheffield representing Appalese. This court should affirm the entry of summary judgment on Peterson's Eighth Amendment claim because he failed to show as a matter of law that Drannon was deliberately indifferent to Peterson's efforts to find a placement for mandatory supervised release or responsible for investigating halfway houses. To begin, Drannon's conduct does not demonstrate a sufficiently culpable state of mind. Each time he was presented with a release plan, request rather, a request for a release plan from Peterson, he put that into the inmate tracking system. He passed that along to the parole division. And I understand that there are a few different terms being thrown around here, but my understanding from the record is the parole division had a sex offender services unit for GPS monitoring, finding locations for them, and the parole resource group that was responsible for locating halfway houses. So after that, Drannon was not contacted again about Wayside until he was in the role of a grievance reviewer in December of 2018. So that's five months between receiving this request and then getting a grievance about that. And in that time, the field services office, which Drannon was a part of, had already submitted home sites, according to Peterson, without any problems or issues in getting those passed along to the parole division for investigation. Now, unfortunately, those were not approved, and the date on which his mandatory supervised release began came and went without an approved residence. And that is the condition of release that Peterson did not have met until January of 2020. But I'll note that in the nine months that he spent at Vandalia on mandatory supervised release, he communicated to Defendant Drannon eight times. Excuse me. Defendant Drannon communicated to Peterson eight times. It's reflected in counseling notes. And each time letting him know about updating him on the status of the parole agent's investigations, reminding him of the parole agent's discretion, and even offering to speak to a potential host site. And in that time, in those nine months, Drannon did not receive another request to name Wayside in a release plan. I just want to point out a couple of things. One, 
There's a difference between counselors like Janie James and field services, folks who are working in field services. Initially, there was a defendant in this case, Janie James, who Peterson testified that he had spoken to over 10 times about a request to go to Wayside. And he said that each time he was rebuffed. But this person is obviously not Defendant Drannon. I just want to make sure that it's clear that the number of times that Drannon even heard the term Wayside on this record is two. One in June or July of 2018 when he passed along the homeless plan to the parole resource group. And then in December of 2018 when he was serving as a grievance officer. And as to the point about when he heard from Peterson as a grievance officer, that of course his role as a grievance officer is to determine whether the grievance has merit for further review. And he denied that grievance. He suggested denying that grievance. And then that, of course, though, didn't have any effect on the parole resource group's authority and responsibility to locate a halfway house for Mr. Peterson. And, of course, his role as a grievance officer was not to investigate claims or to investigate halfway houses as Mr. Peterson had requested in the grievance. That, again, was the responsibility of the parole resource group. And even if Drannon was mistaken or negligent in that process, he could not be found deliberately indifferent. Unless this court has no further questions, we ask that you affirm the summary judgment entered for Defendant Drannon. Thank you. Mr. Flaxman. I think not. Thank you very much. Our thanks to all counsel. The case is taken under advisement.